He was 21. The wheel spinner was older than he was. The foreman said it was an accident. The foreman said the company was not at fault. The company offered him $1,500. He thought $1,500 was a fortune. The foreman told him $1,500 was more than the going rate for a single finger. He thought $1,500 was more than he deserved. Welcome back. We're here with Caridad Mordo Gronier, who is a poet and a bunch of other amazing things I introduced in the previous episode. And we're going to talk about her book of poetry, Tortiera. It's from Texas Review Press, came out in 2021. It's great. You can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And it's really good. You should order it and read it. If you come to the Miami Book Fair, Caridad will be hanging around. She'll sign it for you. I will. First, before we get into that, what is a tortiera? What does it mean? Why did you choose to use this title for your book? Tortiera is a homophobic slang term for lesbian. It is very derogatory. Growing up, I was told it's better to be a puta than a tortiera, so better to be a whore than a lesbian. It was so rooted in shame, and the fear of having that word attached to me totally affected the trajectory of my life and my coming out and the whole thing, that I decided that I needed to own the term, to reclaim it, reframe it, and that's what I did. It's been great. Actually, just today, I got a post on Instagram showing me my book in the University of Houston from a Cuban woman thanking me. And I actually cried because the vernacular is not very known to people who aren't Cuban, but it actually is not just particular to Cubans. I've heard other people tell me that. And also, Tortilla means a female maker of maize tortillas. Why are those two words the same? Actually, the first poem in the book that's called Entry, and it's modeled after an OED definition because I queered the meaning and then I queered OED because if you're going to do it, let's do it, right? It's actually a traveler term, and it comes from tortise, which means twisted in French, and then from the French, we got the Spanish tortillera. That goes to Q in German, and that's where we get queer. So this whole idea to be inverted, to be twisted, it got to Cuba because, of course, Cuba was a direct colony of Spain at first. And then in that very poem, it was also used in Mexico. When the Spanish Civil War happened and they arrived in Mexico, the Spanish said, Mexico le da la bienvenida. El sindicato de tortilleras le da la bienvenida. The tortilleras union. The man said, wow, what a cosmopolitan country if even tortilleras get a union. So it's not particular to Cubans, but somehow it kind of stuck. You know, we were talking about oral tradition in the last time. That's kind of an oral tradition, but the slur in this particular case it stings the most in Cuban, I think. The reason for the tortilla is they say that the making of the tortillas mimics lesbian sex. That's not true in any way. That was actually what led me to kind of investigate the origins of the word because I couldn't understand where did this even come from? And actually it comes from tortilla, like the Spanish tortilla, and from egg. And that actually makes more sense. So two eggs make una tortilla. And then from there, they got tortillera. That's a long way to go for an insult. But then I did more digging, and that's where we get the twisted. And that I connected all the way to queer, which was perfect for the purposes of the poem and really the understanding of what is this word. (laughs) That's amazing. 
So I love so many poems in this book, and I have a couple of what are like incredibly personal questions for you, but you know, you write about them in your book, so I don't mind asking them. So you mentioned that the fear of this word tortilla was one of the things that affected the trajectory of your life. I'm going to intuit one of the things you meant by that, which is that you didn't come out for quite a long time. Yeah, I was married to a man, father of my son for 16 years. And then after I had my son, life happened, you know, I was in my mid thirties. It's that time when you start questioning everything. And I tell my students, no matter how much you try to hide from what you're afraid of, the universe will put it in your path. And it was put in my path. And then I came out and that was very scary because, you know, in many ways it would have been maybe easier to do it before I went to college, you know, but there was a lot of collateral damage, but it all worked out. Was it better or worse than you expected when you came out? It was better. Nobody died. Like, you know, I was on the family phone tree, the cousins in California, everybody found out. This was actually pretty funny. I was outed by my cleaning lady who told my grandmother who referred her to me. So she told her and then my grandmother told everybody else, but she told them not to tell anybody because she was going to do it herself. If my cousins hear this, do not tell my abuela that I just outed her big mouth on the interview. Okay, moving forward. <laughs> you know, I did lose some friends and not like lose some friends, but you know, in any divorce, in any iteration of that word, some people choose sides, but I didn't get any really ugliness. The one thing I was really worried about was my little boy, because he was two at the time. It was the best thing I could have done because that's all he's ever known, right? Everything worked out the way it was supposed to. Perfect. We're going to have Caridad read a little bit from her book from a section of a poem called Unpacking the Suitcase that really stood out to me that I really liked. Section three, what I told Pedro Pietri about my father at the New Yorican Cafe. He was never late. He didn't have a car. He worked. He walked to work. He was always on time. He was on time the day the wheel spinner took his finger. He was on time on the morning the foreman was late. He was on time on the morning the foreman forgot to check his machine. He heard his finger jam the machine before he saw it severed. He saw his finger spinning in the wheel before he felt the pain of its loss. He joked that the wheel spinner ate his finger before he ate his breakfast. He joked that he should have called in sick. He joked because he had no sick days. He apologized for breaking the machine. He apologized for his blood, how it tie-dyed the wheel. He apologized after he fainted. He apologized for the mess his mangled hand left on the floor. He apologized to Hector, who was sent to clean up the mess. He was 21. The wheel spinner was older than he was. The foreman said it was an accident. The foreman said the company was not at fault. The company offered him $1,500. He thought $1,500 was a fortune. The foreman told him $1,500 was more than the going rate for a single finger. He thought $1,500 was more than he deserved. He did not say the foreman was usually late. He did not say the foreman was usually hungover. 
He did not say the foreman had to rig the machine every morning. He said it was an accident. He said the foreman was not at fault. He said the company was not at fault. He signed the no fault agreement. He signed it with his left hand. He signed the check with his left hand. He walked home with 15 $100 bills in his pocket. He bought a solid gold ID bracelet branded with his name to remind him of who he was. He went back to work as soon as they let him. He was never late. It's even a little bit more chilling when you read it out loud than when I read it in the book. That's a true story? That's a true story. Which finger was it? His middle finger. <laughs> <laughs> so so that was like one of the most obscene things possible because he'd like I can't even really do it he'd like hold up his stump that was obscenity <laughs> yeah wow so yeah this story could have been my grandmother too who came to Brooklyn first and was working in a bra factory and was just another Puerto Rican who you know if she wasn't there if someone else would take her job if she was five minutes late and the people who worked for her didn't give a shit and if something like this had happened to her the reaction would have been exactly the same. I don't think she would have apologized for her own blood. He needed a job, right? He didn't want to get fired. I'm sorry, you know? Such an amazing detail. I got to say, the most upsetting part of that poem to me is that he got the $1,500 that day. They just bought his finger. It's just something about like the $1,500 in theory seems like more money than $1,500 bills in your hand. Well, and at the time, this was before I was born I was born in 69, so it must have been like 66, 65. A lot of money, but not really, right? It'll make your life easier for a little bit. Maybe it'll pay off a few debts, but it's not worth a finger for sure. Man, what a great poem. That's a great poem. It's in three parts. It's about her family and you should all read it. You being the audience, not you. God, you've read it many times, I'm sure. Do you find it difficult to share the most intimate details with your life with a bunch of strangers? <sighs> Not anymore, not so much, because, you know, like with anything that's creative, it's rooted in fact, but, you know, like the oral traditions we we're talking about, it is my take on it. And I think my family knows that even the harder poems, there is this undercurrent of love and respect and loyalty. But I always run things by my mom. You know, I don't always listen, but I always tell her. And I think she's come to a place where she's, you know, me da la bendición. She realizes that her daughter is a writer and an artist, and that's what you got. And I'm writing a memoir next, so those are considerations that you have. You know, how are you going to portray this? Well, my mom, Esmeralda Santiago, who listeners of the podcast know is our inaugural guest and who Latinas know is just... Wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. You did not know that? Your mom is Esmeralda Santiago when I was Puerto Rican? Yeah, yeah. Oh, please. No, I didn't know that. Oh my God, I love that. Your mom's book is there, right behind me. So yes, my mom's a big deal. Yes. She was actually seminal for me because when I was in school, I was reading a lot of dead white guys. So on my own time, I was finding the Latinas, the Black women, the women who could represent me. And your mother was one of them because she was a Puerto Rican girl. She was a Cuban cousin. You know, we're all the same, really. I mean, our flags are similar. So Puerto Rico, I was like ravenous for these voices, right? And your mother provided one of those really important touchstones for me. So I think it's kismet and that I didn't even know. It's fantastic. 
the thing I was going to say, though, with the memoir is that she talks about this, and I've talked to her privately about this, just that one of the things that happened when she wrote her first memoir was she kept hearing from her 11 brothers and sisters of, why didn't you include this? This happened. Why didn't you include this? And the answer is always because that's part of your life story. And not mine. I saw that happen to you, but it wasn't part of my life. It's interesting, even in my own writing, because my book is not a memoir by any stretch of the imagination, but there are some events that I depict that I was a part of, and only part of the story can be told. And it's also what you remember of that moment that does make it into the book, because memory is a funny thing. We're just talking about that, too. So that's why I love the term creative nonfiction. Because it kind of gives you a little license to get it wrong when it's your memory. And maybe that isn't exactly how it happened, but you would swear that it was. When are we going to see it? I'm currently writing it. So I'm hoping that it'll be ready for the public in the next two years. But it's going to be a memoir and stories. So I've placed a few of them. So I'll let you know. Like you, you know, I give myself deadlines, but I, ah, they slip away. Anyone who wants to email me or tweet at me, and tell me which one of us between Caridad and I are going to finish our book first. So I'm in theory, two months behind my deadline now, but I actually think you might finish your book before me. <laughs> and if my publisher is listening, he's just kidding. Just I'm just kidding. kidding. It's almost done. I am any right there. Now. Any day. Any day now. As soon as I, yeah. Writing a book is hard. So for those of you out there who write books, I'll buy you a scotch. It's hard. So Caridad, I've got one final question for you. The question we end the podcast with, which is, Please recommend two books to our audience. The Roundhouse by Louise Erdrich and The Color Purple by Alice Walker. The Roundhouse, that is the fastest that anybody has ever answered that question. Usually people say, oh, I don't know. But you just came right out with it. That book, well, because we were talking about Native American lore and legend, and that book just blew me away. and It taught me something I didn't know. For example, and I'll just give you a little teaser that if a white man rapes a Native American woman on Indian land, they cannot be prosecuted because there's no jurisdiction to go get him. Wait, what, still? Still. Oh, they can't be extradited. Yeah, exactly. So they can get away with it. And this is a story told through the voice of a 14-year-old boy, and I just happened to have a young tween boy, so it really spoke to me, and I love that book. And I was thinking about it when we were talking about the oral tradition earlier. So not only did I learn that, but it's a great fast paced mystery thriller book because that boy is going to avenge his mother. So it's really great. The book won the Pulitzer. And the beauty of the story is that, you know, it's told to her son. So that this whole idea of like avenging his mom, going back to the idea of vengeance in the seven days and Song of Solomon, these are such old and repeated historical stories. And I'm hoping that maybe when our children are our age, they'll be able to talk about how these stories no longer apply. Well, if anything, if it continues from the time of Toni Morrison's writing to now, it will not be perfect, but it'll be a little bit better. Yes. One will only hope. So that's, I think, the best we can do. My guest next week is Kirk Lynn. He's a playwright, a screenwriter, a novelist, all-around awesome guy. And we're discussing C. Ty Nguyen's book, Games, Agency as Art. It's an interesting read. It's an interesting discussion. We'll see you there. 
If you like this podcast, please rate and review it. It's very important. It really helps the show out. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section where it says rate and review. Hopefully you're going to select five stars and maybe write us a nice review. Or if you don't like the podcast, write us a bad review. That's fine too. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor, and Santiago Ramones, who does all the editing and is really great at it. He has a podcast called Bit Depth, which is really good too. The best way to find out about Book Society is to go to the Book Society website, booksocietypod.com. Get on the mailing list. I'm going to send out a newsletter. The reason for tortilla is they say that the making of the tortillas mimics lesbian sex. That's not true in any way. I don't mind saying out loud that it sounds a lot more like heterosexual sex. <laughs> To me, there's a lot more, you know, I don't know. Exactly.